Extravagant Love, spoken by Pastor Peter Ahn. Happy Thanksgiving, Metro. Welcome to those watching in the nursery to our online community. Thank you for joining us today. What I'd like us to do before we get started here is I'd love for you to break up into groups of three or four. And this happened in the first service, but no one must be left behind. All right, if you see somebody by themselves, I want you to gather them into your group. I want you to share with each other. If you don't know each other, introduce each other, introduce each other to the group. Groups of three or four, and I want you to just share what is one thing you're thankful for? What is one thing that you're thankful for today and why? All right, so why don't we do that? I'm going to give you three minutes to do it. So break up into groups of three or four and share one thing that you're thankful for. Let's do it. Well, here's the great news. The great news is you can continue that conversation today after we have meal, a meal together. All right, you can continue that conversation. Before we talk a little bit about this and what you're thankful for, let's give it up for our arts and ministry team for creating this beautiful banner up here. Uh, last Sunday... There's little leaves here. A lot of you wrote what you were thankful for, and they came up with this amazing design up here. And I just want to encourage you to affirm that we, we want to affirm the artists in our church. And Deborah Moore, we call her mama here, uh, she and her team came up with this. They're also planning to do something for Christmas, a Christmas banner. And so they love it if you are interested in potentially participating to contact them. You can contact me, and I'll, I'll get you over to them. But this is a beautiful banner. I want to thank them and our artists that created this uh, this week. So thank you to them. Uh, but all right, let's just yell it out. What are some things that you're thankful for today? Come on. Salvation. Salvation. Right, excellent spiritual answer. Thank you for that. Anyone else? <laughs> Metro. Okay, you're the first one that's going to eat today, all right? You get first on live. Thank you for that. Anyone else? Health. Coming to church. Amen. Anyone else? Turkey. Okay, all right, thinking about food, we'll get this started, we'll get this started. You know, uh, I go to South Africa almost on a yearly basis, and when I meet the folks there, the Zulu uh, nationals there, they believe that Americans should be the happiest people in the world. They believe that because they associate our wealth and living in a land of plenty to being thankful. And yet the interesting thing about it is that when I go there and I meet them and I connect with them and I've developed some really good relationships with some of them, I find that they're some of the most thankful people I've ever met. In fact, they have nothing. Some of them actually live in abject poverty, and yet they are so thankful that it humbles me many times. So then what causes thankfulness? Is it about wealth and being able to buy things or actually living in scarcity and having nothing? Because then you can be thankful for the small things. What causes one to be thankful? It's neither. You see, it's really about the posture or the perspective that you have in life today that's going to help you and I to be thankful. And the holiday season is rolling around as we're celebrating Thanksgiving Sunday uh, today. But, you know, do you realize that this is one of the most depressing times for many Americans today during the holiday season? And it's not about your circumstances that necessarily needs to change to make you thankful today. It's about your posture and your perspective. And so today Jesus is going to teach us uh, something about how we can be thankful today. It's really about us stopping two, two things in our life because we, we, we do these two things quite a bit. And he's going to share these two things that you and I must stop doing in our lives in order for us to be thankful. So what are those two things? Turn with me to Matthew. We're going to look at chapter 20. We're going to look at verses 1 through 16. Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. I'm reading from the New International Version. Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. Jesus says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About nine in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. 
He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about noon and about three in the afternoon and did the same thing. About five in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around. And he asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and, the, and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who, has, who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money, or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. This is the word of God. Let's bow our heads for a moment of prayer. So God, we come to you today thanking you just for this amazing day, for this day where we can come and be thankful for what you've done in our lives. God, thank you that you taught this uh, text 2,000 years ago, Lord, and I pray that you'll help us to make sense of it today. I pray especially for those in this room that struggle to be thankful today. I pray for those in this room that might be bitter because of life. I pray, God, that you would help them to see how thankful they can be today. And, Lord, that you would teach us as a church how to stop doing these two things, God, that often destroys our relationship with you. And so, God, I pray that the words that come out of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts in this room, I pray, God, that it be pleasing unto you. And all of God's people said, amen. When you look at this passage, there's really one key theme that we learn of here. It's because God is the landowner, and we find that God's love is extravagant. So much so that for some, especially for some Christians, it can actually appear to be quite offensive. And so as you, as you think about the love of God upon your life and upon the lives of other people, would you consider it to be extravagant, or do you sometimes get offended by it based upon how other people receive God's love, and maybe you feel like God's not loving you the same way? You see, this first hired servants, what happened was that they would work a 12-hour shift. 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. was their normal um, hours of work. And their, sort of the correct wage to pay them would be at one denarius, which would be probably around today, like if you hire a day laborer, probably about $100 to $150 today. Right? That was a full day's worth of work. And so they were hired. And then they, we find that the landowner, not the foreman, but the landowner went out and he started to look for other workers. Not because he needed it, but because he wanted to, because he had a heart for those who were not working. You see, day laborers, they didn't get a salary. They only, they only get paid if they work. And if they don't get paid, then their families don't eat. And that's the reality. So we find that this landowner had a tremendous amount of compassion. So he goes out and he starts recruiting more people every three hours. Even decided to go out at 5 p.m. when the work there was over at 6 p.m. And he recruited more people, not because he needed people, but because he simply had a heart for them and wanted to support their family. Because he knows how hard it might be to, to, not, to, to go a day and not work. And so when it came down to payday, when they were getting paid... The first worker saw that even the people who worked only one hour got paid one denarius. They got paid about $100, $150. They thought that because they've worked a 12-hour shift, they're going to get paid more naturally, even though they agreed, and they sort of agreed with the landowner that they were going to get paid one denarius. And when they got the same pay as all the other workers, they obviously got very upset, and they felt that it was unfair. 
and they got really angry. Wouldn't you get a little upset if you ended up working 12 hours and then somebody who came at 5 o'clock got the same pay as you? I mean, come on, we can identify with these first hired servants, right? And what they wanted God to be was fair. And what we learn in this story is that God is never fair to you and me. God is generous. God is extravagant. And we have to be able to grapple with that reality. He may be more extravagant and generous to some other people who desperately need it for the day. But for many of us, because we want God to be fair so much, and we're so consumed with him being fair, that we get offended when we see that his love is so generous towards other people. And you got to watch out for that because for many of us, we struggle with our relationship with God many times because we want him to be fair. But there's nothing fair about God's love. His love is extravagant. His love is absolutely generous. And so for some of us, I mean, we're doing the right things. Many of you come to church every Sunday. You pray. You read the word of God. Maybe you even lead a Bible study. You certainly give to the church. You serve the poor. You do it all. You're like the elder son in the prodigal son parable. You do everything. And then all of a sudden, the younger son comes home, and he goes and spends all of his father's wealth on prostitutes and things like that. And what does the father do? He extravagantly loves his son. So much so he throws him a party, gives him jewelry, gives him a crown. And then the eldest son comes and says, I do everything right. I pray, I read the Bible, I serve you, I serve in the church. I do everything. You never throw me a party. But yet when this, this fornicator this drunk, this crazy guy comes home who took all your money and dishonored you. You love him that way? Come on, Dad. What are you doing? And so can you identify with the eldest son? Can you identify with these first, work, these first hired workers? They just wanted God to be fair, but God is anything but that. Our God is generous. Our God loves us extravagantly. Amen? Amen. So much so that when Jesus was probably teaching this, I think he, he taught it with a little bit more unction, a little bit more fire. Why? Because in many ways, that was his own story. He was in heaven enjoying eternity with being a part of the Godhead. And then God taps him on the shoulder and says, Jesus, I need to strip everything away from you. I need to take away your divinity. You need to become a human being, and you're going to go into this world. You're going to live your life. You're going to suffer physical, emotional abuse, so much suffering to the point that you will be killed and crucified on the cross. Will you do that for me? You think Jesus was at a point like, why? Why do I have to do this? No, he willingly, lovingly did this. Why? Because he loves you and me. Why did God decide to love us that extravagantly that he would kill his own son? Jesus Christ, because he loves you so extravagantly. And he wants to enter, honestly, God wants to enter into a real relationship with you and me. That he longed for that so much that he was willing to show us how much he loves us so extravagantly, so offensively, that he took his son, made him into a human being, and his son walked on this earth, died for us on the cross, resurrected from the dead, so that we can experience the extravagance of God's love for us. And so according to this passage, how can we be thankful today? Because I know for some of us, maybe that's a, a struggle. How can we be thankful? What do we learn from these people and how we can be thankful and so that we can experience God's amazing, extravagant love for us? The first thing we learn is this. We become thankful when we stop negotiating with God. We become more thankful when we stop negotiating with God. Let's read verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. They negotiated how much they were going to get paid. 
right? And so based upon that negotiation, the landowner gave him that much. The other workers, they didn't negotiate with the landowner. They just trusted that the landowner would give him a fair wage. And then what did the landowner do? He blew him away with his generosity. You see, for many of us in this room, let me just be honest. The reason why we're not experiencing the extravagant love of God or his generosity is because you're negotiating with him all the time. You know what I'm talking about? Like, you know, God, uh, I'm going to pray every day. I'm going to read the Bible. I'm going to journal more. I'm going to try to get more right with you. But can you please help me find a job? You ever, like, work on your actions, start changing because you want God to do certain things in your life? Right? You see, you may not say it, like, explicitly, but really, in reality, you're negotiating with God. Maybe you decide to serve in a, in a ministry somehow in this, in this church. Maybe you're going to try to, like, be more Christian or be more spiritual because maybe you need and you're longing for a deep relationship to get married. Maybe you want God to heal your marriage. And so you normally sort of increase your level of spiritual activity. And so without even really acknowledging this reality, for a lot of us, we fall into this trap of negotiating with him. And the reason why that's so dangerous, because I do believe that you have prayer requests, and they're all good. Praying for God to do certain things in your life is good, but it becomes bad when those prayer requests become bigger than God. That's when it becomes destructive, because then you have more faith in a prayer than you do in God then you can't be open to the fact that God might sometimes say no to your prayers. And you have to be okay with that. But if your prayers are bigger than God, then if he says no to it, then a lot of you get upset. You're like these first hired workers, and you get angry because the negotiations didn't go that well with you. And so you get upset with God. We do this all the time. We're constantly falling into this trap. And really what we have to do is we've got to take the posture of these other servants that were hired later. They just entrusted in the landowner to take good care of them. Do you believe that God knows you best? Do you believe that God, because he knows you best, can take care of you the best? Amen? Come on, Baptist people. Let's sing it up a little bit today. Come on, Pentecostals. Because God knows you the best, you should entrust your life to him. So you pray for certain things because you should. It's not that you shouldn't. But you got to be careful that your prayers don't fall into you negotiating with God. Because God loves you and cares for you. He knows everything about you. He will be generous in how he deals with you. And sometimes, perhaps, even as you're going through some hardships in your life and you feel that maybe God's not answering your prayer requests, in, in, in the bigger scheme of things, God's doing something amazing in your life. And he's doing a work in your heart, in your life, to show you something that maybe you haven't seen yet and you're not ready to see it now. But maybe in about five, ten years, you'll see it and you'll say, thank God. God is always at work. Our God is good. Our God is not fair. Our God is generous. And he is wanting to pour out his extravagant love upon you. Amen? Amen. So stop negotiating with him. Stop wanting God to be fair. He's not fair. He is generous. And I hope that you would be able to embrace the generosity of God. Because a lot of you want God to be fair. But can you imagine if God was fair? None of us would be here today if God was fair. Thank God he's not fair. Thank God he's generous and he's willing to pour out his generous love and grace upon each and every one of our lives. Our God is a generous God. He is not a fair God. Amen? Amen. And so therefore then, in verse 16, Jesus, and we talked about this a few weeks ago. He says, when you stop negotiating with him, the posture that you have is you Embrace the posture of, so the last will be first and the first will be last. These servants who didn't negotiate chose to be last. And the ones who did chose to be first. And so today I'm asking you that if you want to stop negotiating with God, I'm asking you to choose to be last. And I know that's un-American, 
It's not normal to be last. I mean, no one wants to be last in anything. But in God's economy, the last are the first. And you become last when you just say, God, I entrust my life unto you. And I'm going to walk every day to the best of my ability in your, in your guidance and in your presence. It's not easy. It's not easy sometimes having faith. When I first got married to my wife, um, you know, we, we, when we were dating, I kind of said, I'm sensing God's leading me into ministry. And, uh, you know, she's like, well, I'm not sensing that, that God is leading you into ministry. And so we fought about it. I said, you know what, let's not, pre- let's, it's ruining even wedding preparation. Let's just kind of like, like not talk about it. When we get married, we can kind of bring it up. And so once we got married, we start talking a little bit more about it. And she just said, I, I don't know. God's not calling us into ministry. And finally, as we start talking about it, I think she saw like my heart and my, my just, just my, my, just I had no joy for work anymore. And, uh, and she said, okay, let's do this. But she goes, uh, but I want you to go local here, preferably Princeton, because Princeton's free. You know, for my, my wife, she's like, she knows, like, if we go into debt and take loans, like, you know, I'm not going to make a lot of money being a pastor. I'm going to pay for that. And Princeton's free. They got a huge endowment there. And so she goes, I want you to go to Princeton. And plus, she loves her family. She wants to be near her family. I said, honey, I think God's calling us to California, to Fuller, to L.A. She goes, no, God's not calling us there. <laughs> and so we fought about that all the time. And she stood her ground. She was not moving. She said, I am not moving from this. And so I got so desperate. And you ever get so desperate that you use the Bible to try to manipulate a situation? <laughs> I was like, you know what? I was like, honey, you're not going to believe this. Look at Ephesians 5, 22 to 23. It says that the wife must submit to the authority of her husband. It was horrible. I mean, that passage, men, do you realize how much we've hurt our wives because we've used those two verses and we've neglected 24 and 25? Where Paul says, husbands, love your wife the way what? Christ loved who? The church. How did Jesus love the church? He died for the church. So what is he asking the the husband to do? To die to our wives. And the optional thing for the wife then is if the husband dies to her, perhaps she should submit to you then. But of course, I didn't know that back then, and I just used it to try to convince her to go to California. So I said, look at this passage. And she's like, you can't make me do something I don't want to do. She was adamant about that. And so it was like one of these dark nights of the soul for me. I couldn't go to sleep because I already said I was going to go to California. I sent my acceptance letter, said I'm going to do it. And we had about six, six, about six months to transition, and she didn't want to move out there. And so it was one of those dark nights, and I just said, you know, I, I, I went up, and I, I, I remember praying in the living room. I said, God, how come... My wife doesn't see what you and I see. <laughs> like, why doesn't she believe that we are to go out to California? And God, I mean, as clear as day, I heard him. He said, do you trust me? I said, of course I trust you. With all my heart, I do. She said, then release this burden from your wife and empower her to make this decision without your input. I said, no, no. <laughs> if I do that, she's really going to say, no, God. I, I don't. I can't do that. And that whole night, for probably the next 20, 30 minutes, all he said was, well, do you trust me? And to my shame, that evening, I said, no, I don't trust you. I don't. And we kept fighting for the next month, kind of talking more about trying to move out there. And then I just got so desperate. I said, okay, you know what? I said, honey, you make this decision, but you got to pray for it for a month. She said, all I have to do is pray for it for a month, and then uh, whatever I say goes? I said, yeah. She said, well, you know it's going to be a no. And I said, just pray for 30 days. If you pray and God says no, we'll stay. 
And during that time, what happened, I didn't mention California, seminary, or anything, but there was one significant thing that happened that really took her to the edge. You know what it was? Because money was a big concern for her and finances and stuff, and I just told her, I think God's just going to provide somehow. What happened was, um, it was, it was a Sunday. I, I led a small group of men, and we would do Bible study every week, and uh, one of the guys just went through a recent breakup, and so he was going through a real hard time. Guys, when we go through a breakup, it's hard for us. And so he was really struggling. He didn't come out to church, and so I called him, and I said, hey, how you doing? And he said, not good. And so we spent about 30, 40 minutes talking, and then I prayed for him. And after I prayed for him, he said, hey, you know, um, I, wanted to, I, I wanted to tell you this, but I feel led to pay for your seminary education. And I said, no, 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 no. I was like, that's a lot of money. We, I can't have you do that. And he said, no, Peter, I've been praying for about a month. And God's been encouraging me to pay for his seminary education. And so I said, well, then you know what? I don't want to get in between you and God then. Okay? If God is calling you to pay for my seminary education, as far be it for me to stand in the way of that, then go for it, brother. Right? No, I didn't say that. I just said, this is a major prayer answered. And I went and I told my wife, I said, you're not going to believe this, but this guy said he was going to pay for my seminary education for the next three years, and he committed himself to the three years and paid for my seminary education. I was debt-free when I graduated. Amen. You know, I could have went to God and said, God, you got to hook it up somehow. I mean, at least 50%. Can I get scholarships or something? Like, you know, help, it out. help me out here, God. Help us out so that my wife can say yes. But there's a part where you just have to trust in God and say, I don't know how it's going to happen, God, but I'm going to trust in you because I know you're calling us to do this. And if you're calling us to do this, you're going to take care of us in some capacity. That's true faith. But when you keep negotiating with him, then you're never going to be thankful. And I was so blown away. I mean, I was like, I was on cloud nine for weeks because of God answered a prayer. And then it was just only about a week or so she said, let's go to California. And so you got to stop negotiating with him you got to stop trying to control a certain situation through your prayers. And you just got to go to God and say, God, I know you know me best. I entrust my life to you. And as you do that, you experience the extravagant love of God. And it will overwhelm you. And it doesn't matter. God doesn't necessarily have to change your circumstances for you to experience his generosity. You need to know that. It's understanding of how much he loves and cares for you through the person of Jesus Christ. Amen? So stop negotiating with God. You'll be more thankful when you do. What's the second thing that we learn here? You got to stop comparing yourself to other people. Stop comparing yourself to other people. Look at verse 9. The workers who were hired about 5 in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. So when those who came were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only one hour, they said. And you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, I'm not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Are you envious because I am generous? The reason why many of us are struggling in our relationship with God, the reason why many of you aren't thankful today is because you're comparing yourselves to other people. I mean, it's almost un-American not to compare yourself to other people right? We do it all the time. And I think a lot of times we do that from, sometimes from our parents. Our parents compared us. I don't know about your parents. My parents would always compare me to their friends' kids. Mrs. Choi's kids got straight A's last year. What's wrong with you, right? Mrs. Park's kids got a 1,600 on their SATs. 
What about you? I'm like, they kept comparing me. I'm like, isn't there something I'm better than one of your friend's kids? I mean, let's say I'm taller than them or something, you know? Like, can't you just say one affirming thing? And so a lot of it comes from our family. Because we were compared to every one of your parents' friends' kids. And so there's this really deep, unholy practice that we do every day where we compare ourselves to other people all the time. And when you do that, you destroy your relationship with God. You know why? Because you're not happy with how God created you. You think perhaps maybe God made a mistake when he created you. And the more you compare yourself to other people, you're less content with how God made you, and you can't be happy with where your life is today. Because no matter what, folks, let me just let you in on something. There will always be somebody smarter than you. There will always be somebody richer than you. And there will always be somebody better looking than you. And will always be. And some of you, like, you look at somebody, and you're like, how can this person be more successful than me? I went to an Ivy League school, right? I did better in my schooling. I work harder than this person. Look how successful this person is. And you get so angry that they're more successful than you, right? Or how about you look at somebody, and you're like, how did this person get married? I'm better looking than them, <laughs> right? I got a better job. Look, I got a lot more things to offer. I love Jesus. How did this person get married? You ever meet a couple, and you're thinking, how in the world did that guy get that girl? Like, you just scratch your head, like, what is up? Or how did that guy get that, you know, or the other one? How did that girl get the guy? And you're wondering, what's going on there? And you get more upset because you're comparing what this person got compared to what you got or what you didn't get. And you get angry. You shake your fist at God and say, God, why? Why is that happening to me? And you get envious because that's really the byproduct of us comparing. And that's why the landowner says, why are you so envious? Because I'm generous? You're envious? You see, those, those first hired workers, you know what they should have done? They should have been thankful. They had a lot of reason to be thankful because they got hired at 6 a.m. They got up in the morning, they stood out there in the corner hoping that they would get hired. That's what everyone's dream is today. They hoped that they would get hired, and they were the first ones to get hired. And when the other guys got paid the same, they said, well, at least we're grateful that we were the first ones hired because those who got hired at 9, they were worrying for three hours. Is anyone going to hire us? Am my kids going to be able to eat today? Could you imagine those who got hired at 12 o'clock, how much they were struggling with that? And then 3 o'clock, three more hours, they just thought it's not going to happen. My kids are not going to eat today. How about the ones at 5 o'clock? Could you imagine how rejected they felt and how dire their situation was? That's why the landowner went out there. He couldn't send his foreman, but he wanted to go out there to minister to these people and to pay them and to help them. It wasn't because he needed their help on the field. It was because of how much they were suffering through the day and realizing that they're not going to be able to support their family for the day. Those first hired servants should have been grateful and said, you know what, we're so thankful that we got hired at 6 a.m. We didn't have to struggle with the reality of being hired or not today. They should have been, but they weren't. And you see, in order for us to stop comparing ourselves to other people, what we have to learn to do is we have to learn to be grateful. That's the only way we're going to stop comparing ourselves. If we can't be grateful for what we have already, you'll always be unsatisfied with your life. You guys have so much. We have so much to be grateful for today you got to spend some time just thanking God for the gratefulness. And, you know, um, I, as I was writing the sermon this week, two days ago, somebody shared on their Facebook news feed this link to USA Today, and it was literally the importance of gratitude. Psychologists have said that gratitude is one of the strongest links to mental health, more so than even optimism. Have you ever meet optimistic people? I'm kind of optimistic. Sometimes they can be annoying because <laughs> they're too optimistic. But they say gratitude, that if one can be grateful, they said 
if, if one can learn to write down what they're grateful for every day on a piece of paper, they said it even accelerates even more. And they contributed gratefulness to reduce the lifetime risk for depression, anxiety, and get this, even substance abuse. If you can just be grateful today. Because if you can be grateful for what you have, then you know what? You'll look at what other people have, and you'll say, way to go. Good job. You won't be like, well, why do you have that and I don't? And you start looking them up and saying, like, you know, I'm better than you. What's going on? So you got to stop comparing yourself. Stop comparing yourself and be grateful for what God's already done in your life. You do that, you will be thankful for everything that is your life today on this Thanksgiving Sunday, even though for some of you, you have real hardships that you're going through today. The promise that God has for you is this. He will maybe not change those circumstances because you got to just let God take control. But he promises to be with you to give you strength to endure the difficult seasons in your life. Amen? Amen. About a month ago, I came home from a leadership team meeting, and it was about 1030 at night. My daughter, Christina, 16 years old, she was crying. And I'm thinking, whoa, what did she do this time? Like, and I hear my wife kind of talking to her. I'm thinking, oh, she did something horrible. So I took my shoes off, and I went upstairs really quick to investigate what she did wrong. And she didn't do anything wrong. She kept, she wasn't crying. She was weeping. And she kept saying, it's not fair. It's not fair. And I said, what's not fair? She said, Christian doesn't even study. And he gets an A. She said, do you know how hard I have to study to even try to get an A? It's not fair. And she goes, it's not fair because Kayla is more musically gifted than me. She doesn't even practice. You know how hard I have to practice to try to be good? It's not fair. And she just started weeping. It wasn't even crying, weeping. And, and I realized, you know, that at that point, like, there's nothing I could say that would really help her or even, like, you know, comfort her because she was sort of a wreck, right? And there was a part of me, like, you know, I thought, I'm like, come on, girl. Is this really what you're crying over? Like, is this the hardest thing you're going through in your life right now at age 16? There's nothing. Trust me. Like, I wanted to say that, but I had the sensitive cap on. And I was like, I got to be careful. I got to love on my daughter at this point. So I hugged her. I said, it'll be okay. I said, let's just pray. All right, and so we prayed, and that was it, and she went to bed. But I knew I had to speak to her because if I didn't, I know she would continue to do this unhealthy practice of comparing herself to everyone else, and it would destroy her relationship with God, but also her relationship with her brother and her sister. And I don't want that to happen as her father. I want them to be close and love each other, all right? And so I knew I had to say something. My wife was so broken. She's like, what are we doing wrong with her? Like, why is she like this? And she started, like, I didn't know this, but I fell asleep right after. But she told me she was crying, she cried herself to sleep that night because she was so sad about it, right? So I knew I had to talk to her. So about a week later, she was up in her room studying, and I just closed the door, and I said, hey, I need to have a conversation with you. I said, honey, why are you comparing yourself to your brother and sister? I was like, do you know when you do that, you actually are not happy with how God made you? And I said, do you know how perfect you are? Do you know how beautifully, perfectly God created you? I said, Christina, you are the most, you are the hardest working person I have ever met in my life. You work so hard. And I said, like, do you know that's the recipe for success? It's not intelligence. It's not a certain giftedness towards something, but it's an ability to work really hard. And you have that work ethic. I was like, you became captain. She's going to be captain of her tennis team, varsity tennis team. And do you know that she played JV this entire year? If you play sports growing up in high school, captains are only selected oftentimes if they're the best players. 
But because her coach saw that she was working so hard and she was really, she had these leadership gifts, just said, you're going to be the captain, one of the captains for the tennis team next year. I was like, look how hard you work. And I was like, I get why, you're, I get why sometimes you get angry because of how hard you work and how Christian doesn't work so hard and he gets better grades than you. I get that. And I was like, you know, when I was in seminary, daddy got good grades, but I said, but also, like, I would study for weeks before an exam. And I had friends who were so brilliant, they would study, like, a couple hours before the exam, and sometimes they would do better than me. So I understand. And I said that in a little bit of trepidation because I thought she was going to say, it's because of you I'm like that. <laughs> uh, but luckily, she didn't do that. She didn't. But you know what she did do? She started crying. And it wasn't because she was sad. It was tears of healing. There was a healing that was happening in her soul. And I said, Christina, God created you perfectly. Don't ever compare yourself to anyone else. You are perfect in his eyes. Metro Community Church, God didn't make a mistake when he created you. You're perfect in his eyes. So stop comparing yourself to other people. Today, some of you need to cry tears of, of, of healing today because you've compared yourself to others all the time. And as a result of that, you're living this bitter, sad life, not able to experience the extravagant love of God because you're always comparing yourself to other people. You are perfect. God didn't make any mistake when he created you. Can you be grateful for that? today. That's my hope and prayer. And so that on this Thanksgiving Sunday, that we would be some of the most thankful people in this area. Why? Because we know that God didn't make a mistake when he created us, and we're grateful for that, and that we stop negotiating with God going forward, and we just entrust our lives to him. You are perfect, and I hope that you'll begin to live your life in that way. Let's bow our heads for a moment of prayer.